Very good. Now, now we're ready to begin. So last week we started this new section, section seven, soteriology, discussing the nature of salvation. And where this begins is talking about salvation before Jesus. So we did a bit of a review about who man is, because remember, our gospel is only as good as our beliefs about who man is. So, um, yeah, maybe, is that sentence supposed to end in our beliefs about who man? That just looks weird. That sounds weird. You get the point. So we need to uh, have a solid foundation of who we believe man is and how sin has affected man. And that will lead into our theology of salvation. If you jump to a theology of salvation without having a theology of sin at all, then we're trying to solve a problem that we can't even define. And that's, that's in itself a problem. So we went through that last week. And if you didn't hear that one, these are all recorded. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one. But we started in then on the Old Testament. After kind of getting that in place, reviewing those themes, we started going back and we made it through Genesis 8. We talked about Genesis 3, where the first sacrifice ever was made by whom? God himself. And what did he do with the skins from the sacrifice? Yeah. His whole point for making that sacrifice was to clothe Adam and Eve. Pretty astounding thing going on there in Genesis 3. And then in Genesis 4, we looked at the second sacrifice that was ever made. And that was made by... You could say it was a tie. Okay, yeah. We don't know who made the one first, right? But Cain and Abel made sacrifices. Very good. And then in Genesis 8, who made a sacrifice there? Noah. And now we come to Genesis 22, and we have something that's categorically different than everything else we've been looking at with Abraham here. Genesis 22, and we'll look at verses 6 to 14. Genesis 22, and um, if someone wouldn't mind, I would love for someone to read that for us. Genesis 22... 6 to 14, who could read that passage for us? Mike, thank you. Right here. Hey, so here we're looking at a fourth sacrifice made in the book of Genesis, here at the start of the Bible, going back to the beginning here of human history, this fourth sacrifice that's recorded. What was this sacrifice? Oh, yeah, the ram. Go. That is a, a great question, isn't it? Especially considering, you know, how old was Abraham when Sarah conceived Isaac? Well, New Testament said he was as good as dead, all right? So he was an old, old guy. And so here, we don't know exactly, I, I don't think we know exactly how old Abraham was. We don't know how old Isaac was, but you could assume Abraham was well over, of course, 100 years old. And Isaac is communicating with him, must be maybe a teenager or older. So Isaac had to be a willing participant here, didn't he? When you think about what he was thinking, he had to be willing because Abraham wouldn't have been able to Hold him down. When he got on the altar and the wood was placed on him, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think the dots were fully connected at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
Yes. Yes, he was bound. He willingly had himself bound, yeah. Okay, well, let's walk through a few uh, thoughts here on this passage, a few observations, and then we'll marinate on it some more. By this time, lambs for burnt offerings were a regular practice among the people of God. So if you remember hearing there back earlier in the passage, when Isaac asked, okay, there's the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? And he asked the lamb for the burnt offering. So apparently by that time, this was a regular practice. And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Isn't that amazing verbiage, too, the way that's phrased? God will provide for himself. These offerings are for God. God is in the business of bringing glory and honor to himself. He's in the business of bringing worship to himself. Um, You know, again, I, I feel like I always have to say this just in case, you know, someone's thrown off by that. It would be wrong for us to bring glory to our own names. That's, you know, boasting. That's pride. But is it wrong for God to bring glory to his name? No, it's, it's actually eternally right for God to do that. Because God is absolutely blameless, totally holy, perfectly pure. That's good, right? He's the one who is to be worshipped. Second observation. This is still before the law of Moses that outlined sacrifice. So here this morning, I think we'll get there, (laughs) into um, Leviticus and into Deuteronomy that talk about sacrifices, when they should be made, how they should be made, who should be making them, yada, yada, yada. It goes down and explains it all very thoroughly. Well, all of that came through Moses when Israel was called out of Egypt and they were given the law as that nation to obey. Well, this is before that time. This is well before that time. So you have burnt offerings going on before the law outlined the specifics on that. So just another thing to note, okay, to keep, keep the context. Here's a question for you. It's a natural question. You have a father here called to sacrifice his one and only son. Is God pointing toward the coming Messiah through this event? What do you think? So Mandy is going all in, pushing all the chips in, saying yes. Sorry to use a gambling analogy that causes anybody to stumble. Yeah, okay. Any, anyone want to disagree with that? Joe? Okay. How that would point to the coming Messiah? Because you have a one and only son being sacrificed for sin. An offering being made by the one and only son. And you could even press into that and say, wood was put on, and that's what the passage says. The wood was arranged, the sun was bound, and the wood placed on him. And, of course, the Son of God carried a cross made of wood. Um, Yeah. Can you think of why someone might say, no, that's not pointing to the coming Messiah? Good, very good. The lamb, the ram, was the one who died, right? Isaac didn't actually die. All right, well, you guys can figure all that out on your own. But uh, so, you know, it's, when it comes to types and shadows in the Old Testament that point toward New Testament things, there are different schools of thought, and I tend to err on the side of caution. I mean, so another reason why someone might say, no, that's not pointing toward the coming Messiah, is because the New Testament never makes that connection. 
There are lots of connections the New Testament makes. It says this was talking about Jesus. This was pointing toward Jesus. It doesn't do that with this story. So to be, I mean, to be super cautious, you'd say, I'm only going to make those connections where the Bible makes them for me. But is that the best way to go about it? Maybe not. And there's wiggle room on all that where you guys can figure all that out. Yeah, Stan. Yeah. Yes, more or less. Yes, all right. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. But there are lots of events that happen through the Old Testament. And so the question is, which of those events reflect or foreshadow, it was a better word, what is to come? Obviously not everything. So you think of a David dancing naked or Ezekiel eating bread that was cooked over feces. What are those foreshadowing in the New Testament? Well, uh, okay, yeah, let's, let's not try to make connections. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> the Ezekiel bread? Yeah, the Ezekiel bread company doesn't do that, you know. Isn't that something? They, they leave out that part, yeah. So it, it, the question is... Wh- but, but obviously this narrative is different where you don't have, you know, some of those quirky things and you have a father sacrificing his only son. So you think, okay, that's a natural fit, but then you've got the reality that the son didn't die and so you kind of got to wrestle with that a little bit. Right. Yeah, I mean, and that's another thing to ask. Would, would Abraham have realized that through that event? Would Abraham have walked away thinking, Oh, God the Father is going to sacrifice God the Son. Now, that's not a prerequisite for this to be a foreshadowing. They didn't need to have perfect knowledge of all those things. But it is something to consider, like, what was God teaching Abraham in that moment? What did God want Abraham to walk away with? And that's probably the primary purpose of what was going on. Other thoughts, questions? I don't know if I have... No, I don't have more on that. Sorry, I wish I did. Um, Other thoughts or questions on this passage here? Okay. All right. Well, let's go to Exodus then. Let's go to the next one. Exodus 12, another familiar passage. So Genesis 22, I suppose, was familiar to many of you. Exodus 12 will also be pretty familiar. I'll read this for us and then walk through some observations again and then um, pause there for any thoughts or questions. Exodus 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. Yummy! Verse 10, 
And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign where sorry, a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. All right, the Passover. There it is. Very familiar theme. First observation I have for you, this was the first time that God commanded his people to kill an animal for the sake of blood. Okay? To kill an animal, to use its blood for some sort of symbolic purpose. First time this is happening in the Bible. Okay? First time we see this as we read through the pages of Scripture. He wants them specifically to take the blood of the lamb, to put it on their doorpost, that it would have this effect of him passing over their houses. Second, the blood was the means by which Israel escaped death. And so the blood was essential. They couldn't just kill the lamb and forget to put the blood on the doorpost. They had to put the blood on the doorpost. They had to use the blood symbolically as God was prescribing it here. This was how they were to obey that command. And God was going to kill, but they were to be passed over. They were to be spared. It says in verse 13 that the blood shall be a sign, and when God sees the blood, he will pass over that no plague, no destruction would affect them. Verse 3, fancy word, propitiation. It became a theme for them year after year. Propitiation. Did I spell that right? I did. Okay. Propitiation. Now, this is a word that you may know better as atonement. But let me tell you something. I don't super like using the word atonement because propitiation is just a better word. <laughs> uh, it's, it makes you sound smarter. No, um, propitiation is actually the New Testament word. We get this word in a few places um, a couple of times in Romans, a couple of times in Hebrews. We won't go to all there today. We'll get there eventually. But it's actually a little more specific to the Bible than atonement. What's interesting, if you were to use a concordance and look up atonement, so a concordance where you look up a word and it tells you the instances of those word, that word in the Bible. If you looked up atonement, if you're using a concordance that goes with the New American Standard Bible or several good modern translations, it's not going to come up with much. I think even in the King James, it only comes up once in the New Testament. Now, that's probably surprising to many of you, because it's a very common word, atonement, atonement, atonement. The word that comes up more than atonement, six times or so, is the word propitiation in the New Testament, which means, this word means a satisfactory payment or covering So, let's jump ahead in our mind here to the time of Christ and His sacrificial death on our behalf. 
What is so amazing about the death of Jesus uh, is that it covers all of our sins, doesn't it? The death of Christ is satisfactory for all of our sins, past, present, future. It is absolutely satisfactory. Now, could someone mean that when he or she says atonement? Yes. But I've found that, especially around here, when you're engaging people, the word atonement comes up and they don't necessarily mean propitiation. So I like to throw that curveball out there and say, have you ever heard of propitiation? And then we talk about that. Okay, but what this is doing in Exodus is setting us up for the propitiation of Jesus Christ. The lamb that was to be slain, the blood that was to be on the doorpost, was satisfactory. For God's purposes at that time in his program, it was satisfactory. And so year after year, they were to remember this sacrificial death that covered their sins, leading up to the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Well, because they've rejected their final sacrifice. They've rejected their Messiah. And actually, um, we looked at this on Wednesday night. The New Testament tells us why they don't believe in Jesus. What they were seeking, Israel, they have not found. Those who were chosen have found it, but the rest were hardened and given a spirit of stupor, it says in Romans chapter 11. Um, do we get information about those who weren't able? I don't know if we do. It seems like they took that pretty seriously. You know, they were living in a pretty serious time. They were seeing the plagues and uh, they wanted to get out of there, right? They wanted to get out of Egypt. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure seems that way. And, and, what, and what happens after this? The, uh, they end up crossing miraculously, you know, the Red Sea, and they are, that's their salvation of the, of the nation, that they're led out of Egypt. And then after that, shortly, they disobey. That when, yeah, it's actually, it's pretty interesting. So Luke's gospel is the only place where it says his sweat became like drops of blood. And it's a simile that's used there. Sweat was like drops of blood. Sweat often, of course, beads up comes out quite slowly, whereas someone who is bleeding, if they have some kind of a cut or something, it can just start running, right? Um, I think that was Luke's point, was that his sweat was like drops of blood, not that he was literally sweating blood. He may have literally sweat blood, but I don't think that we can get that from that passage necessarily. Um, so that's one thing to note about that. Another thing to note is that the Bible, the New Testament, continuously points to the cross as the place where atonement or propitiation was made. 1 Peter 2.24 is a really critical verse in that conversation, one of many. But 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He himself bore in his body our sins on the cross. That's about as clear as you can make it, right? 1 Peter 2.24. And so that's a, a helpful verse to have discussions about. Yeah. Does this event point to Jesus? I've already shown my hand on that one, haven't I? Does the Passover point to Jesus? Uh, yeah, and actually, there's a clear New Testament precedent for that. You can jot down 1 Corinthians 5.7, 1 Corinthians 5.7, where it says specifically that Christ is our Passover. That's why we don't celebrate Passover year after year, um, as a means of keeping up this law that was given to Israel, 
But we see that this was fulfilled in Jesus. Christ is our Passover. He has been, past tense, sacrificed. So um, there's not the same need today to observe Passover year by year as they did then. Okay? And of course, we're not under the law that would then command God's people to do that. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. Okay, any final thoughts before we move on to Leviticus? Uh, well, might need to save that one for heaven, Mike, uh, and we'll find out then, okay? All right. <laughs> yeah, in haste. <clears throat> I bet it smelled great. Leviticus 16, Leviticus chapter 16. And while you're turning there, Connie, another thing that's come to mind is um, these sacrifices in the Old Testament that led up to the death of Christ, like take the Passover, for example. They were not called to go to a lamb and prick it and then take a vial of some of its blood and then that would be the covering. The lamb had to die. And that's these, these sacrifices that foreshadow Christ, they're all about death. Something has to die. And so um, Jesus, whenever he was a carpenter, did he ever bleed before his death? Oh, I'm sure he did, right? Who hasn't? Who, who hasn't lived until 33 years old and hasn't bled in some way, shape, or form? Th those times it wasn't sacrificial. It wasn't propitiatory, to use that word. But it, when he died on the cross, that's when it was. Right. Yeah, like I said, he may have very well have sweat blood in the garden. There's a condition, there's a medical condition where that can happen. Could have happened. I don't think it did. If someone believes it did, that's okay. Regardless, that wouldn't have paid for sins any more than when he was a carpenter and something hit his arm or whatever and he bled then. All right. Leviticus 16. There's a lot I want us to see in Leviticus 16 because this one is really amazing in its detail. So let's start with verses 1 through 5. Who will read that for us? Leviticus 16, 1 to 5. Stan, go ahead. All right, so um, here we have some references to the um, priesthood that was given to Aaron and his descendants. And I want to make reference um, to a couple of things, actually, because now I'm seeing two. Back on page 20 of our notes, we talk about propitiation in detail. We looked at two passages in Romans and then Hebrews and 1 Peter um, and some other passages as well. So if you want more information on propitiation, it's back in our notes on page 20. If you're interested in more information on this priesthood stuff with the linen undergarments and everything that's going on there, you can look at page 22 and 23 that talk about the different priesthoods, talking about the priesthood given to Aaron and the priesthood of Melchizedek too. We talked about those on 22 and 23. So uh, just a reminder that we've already covered those things and I'm letting you know I'm not going to do that now. But uh, Leviticus 16, 1 to 5, let's make some observations. First, Israel needed a high priest. They needed a priest, a mediator, someone to intercede. And this, of course, was Aaron at that time. Aaron was the one who was going to enter the holy place to intercede or to mediate on behalf of God's people. Now, was Aaron chosen for this because he was particularly holy? No. I mean, you just read the story of Aaron's life. He had plenty of flaws, didn't he? Kind of in the same way that Mary wasn't chosen because she was particularly holy. Okay, these people are chosen according to God's sovereign choice. And, uh, 
Aaron was to do this in a very particular way. So they needed a high priest. There was a holy place. That's something that, you know, we're jumping into this. You kind of need to know a little bit about the tabernacle and later on the temple. There was a room inside of it that was particularly holy called the holy place or the holy of holies that was protected by a veil. And the high priest was to interact with this holy place by going in once a year. The high priest, when he would do this, had to wear symbolic clothing. The clothing is detailed here and in other places. Back in Exodus, the clothing is detailed here. It's really just a reference, but if you have a Bible with cross-references, you can see more details about that clothing. And Israel needed not only a burnt offering, but a sin offering. Now, I won't go into detail about all the different types of offerings that there are and what and defining all of those. Uh, there are resources where you could get that information. If you want to know, just let, let me know, and I'll get you those resources. But it's particular to this passage here, or specific in this passage, that it was going to be a sin offering. This was going to be something that was propitiatory, okay? something that relates to atonement, is that they were going to have this offering for their sin made by a high priest who was wearing symbolic clothing going into a holy place, Okay. Um, questions there. Shane? Yes. So, yeah, priesthood garments would tie back to this, though I believe only Melchizedek priesthood holders wear them. Um, so I would say probably, but I would need to double check on that because we don't have any information about what underwear Melchizedek wore. So, yeah. Poor, poor Aaron, his underwear has been preserved in uh, by the Bible. I mean, we know about his underwear, uh, but don't have that for Melchizedek. So, yes, Sarah. We will get to that in later in the passage. Good question. But yes, we, we are not left short with that information. Other thoughts or questions? Because we're going to keep going through Leviticus 16. Okay. All right. Let's look at 6 to 19. A little bit of a longer section, but this whole chapter is very important. I wrote a little book on this chapter once. I don't have any more in print. I, should, I was wanting to revise it, update it, and then print it again. But the problem with that is then you've got to update it and do that work. And I just It's on the list. It's one of those many things on the list. All right, um, 6 to 19. Who would read that for us? Brandon, thank you. All right. So Sarah, who was doing all the slaughtering there? Yeah. He was like a butcher, a part-time butcher. A uh, lot of slaughtering going on. Okay, more observations to make. What an amazing passage. The high priest was made pure by his own sin offering. This is important to note. Aaron, of course, like we covered already, wasn't perfect, was he? So he had to be atoned for. Before he could intercede on behalf of Israel, he himself had to be made pure. He couldn't just jump in and say, here I am, perfect mediator. He had to have an offering made on his behalf before he was able to act on others' behalf. Okay? One of the goats paid for sin. The other goat took sin away. What an amazing picture. I love Leviticus 16. This is so amazing. You got two goats, and they cast lots. And there were different ways that they cast lots back then. You know, uh, different things that you could imagine in your mind's eye of how they did this. But... Basically, they left it up to the Lord to decide through that. The lot falls to one, and he's the one that's going to die. And then for the other one, they lay hands on it and confess the sins of Israel and send it off into the wilderness. 
Casting their sins, you could say, as far as the east is from the west. Off it goes. And the other one dies in their place for their sins. The high priest needed to be shielded from God's presence. Did you guys catch that in this passage? How he needed to be shielded from the presence of the Lord? This, um, this incense stuff. Verse 12, he's taking a fire pan full of coals, finely ground sweet incense, and he's bringing it inside the veil. And then verse 13, the cloud of incense was to cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. If that didn't happen, he would die. Because even though there was an offering made on his behalf, he was still just a man, right? And this is the holy of holies. This is the holiest place. God has arranged it to be this holy place where he would come in and meet with God as the high priest. And yet there's no man that can be in the presence of God and live without some sort of covering, without some sort of protection. And so this incense was made, and he goes in there, and he had to be shielded from God's presence, otherwise he would die. There was a lot of blood. Okay, lots of blood. Taking the blood and sprinkle, sprinkle, putting it on the horns, you know, doing all these different things, blood, blood, blood. And that is representative of death, isn't it? Things had to die. And there's life in the blood. These things gave up their lives on behalf of the people. And I don't get the impression that they, you know, went back in afterwards, and, or only Aaron could go in anyway, that he could go back in afterwards and clean it all up and use turtle wax and make it all shiny for the next year. Got a feeling this was year after year, the high priest did this and that blood remained from years past. Wow. Let's see. Do I have any other notes on that passage? Uh, no. Well, it was written down. That helped, huh? Step by step, it was given to them. Yep. Moses was the one who received this, and he wrote it down, gave it to Aaron. I mean, the law was extremely important in Israel. They preserved that law. I was just talking to a, a woman yesterday um, Dax and I ran up to a, a conference in Sandy, and there was this woman who was kind of transitioning in her faith, having a hard time believing that the Old Testament had been preserved. She believed that the New Testament was trustworthy, but the Old Testament, maybe that people had gone in and changed stuff. And I was trying to talk to her about how that's really a backwards way of looking at it, that the Old Testament was, is actually really secure in its tradition because Israel had it the whole time. They, to them belong the oracles of God, and they, they've had this law for thousands of years, and no one was tampering with that. Um, and we have you know, some interesting manuscript evidence for the Old Testament to, to show that. But uh, the law was extremely important. I don't know if you remember, but Joshua was told when they crossed over into the Promised Land to write the law on stone. Can you imagine doing that? And uh, that's how they were to regard the law. Very precious. Other thoughts or questions on that section of the chapter that we just read? Next section? All right. Let's uh, look at 20 to 34. Again, a bit longer. I'll, I'll go ahead and read this. Um, 20 to 34. Okay, make, make some notes of your own along the way here, and we'll, we'll compare notes afterwards. Leviticus 16, 20. When he finishes atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. 
Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness." Then Aaron shall come to the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up smoke in the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterwards he shall come into the camp. A lot of detail, huh? Okay, a ninth observation from this chapter. The goat who took away sins was set apart for that specific task. So Aaron was to take the live goat here, the one that hadn't been sacrificed, and he was to put upon that goat all the sins of the people of Israel. And because they were to do this year after year, this was an annual holiday, that means the last calendar year's worth of sins symbolically were placed on that goat. And a man who stands in readiness, a guy who's just like ready to be the goat walker, he's ready and he leads the goat out into the wilderness. Okay? Um, the men needed to be cleansed. There's a lot of bathing going on here in this passage. So you're touching this goat that had the sins of Israel put on it. Now you're touching it. Now you're unclean and you got to go bathe yourself. Okay, same with Aaron as he's making these offerings. He's interceding for the sake of the people. He's getting that sin on him as a mediator needs to cleanse himself. And Israel was spiritually cleansed once per year, as I just said. This is the holiday Yom Kippur in the Old Testament called the Day of Atonement. Can you imagine how the depth of God's wrath against sin would be communicated to you if you did this every year? I mean, I'm sure you had some family traditions, things you would do once a year growing up, places you would go to, like uh, we had our, our Howard reunion once a year at Ha Ha Tonka State Park. You know about Ha Ha Tonka, Stan? At, uh, down in Camden County, Missouri. We'd go down there every year, and gra Granny would make fried chicken, and it'd be a good time. But can you imagine if your family tradition, your once-per-year family tradition, was this? Standing around from the time you were a child, beholding these things, seeing it done, animals being slaughtered, the goat being taken out to the wilderness after your sins were confessed on it, and off it goes. I think you'd take sin pretty seriously, wouldn't you? At least for that day. I mean, we're all fickle. So maybe next, the next week you would be back to your normal ways, but that whole event communicates something, doesn't it? And again, this is setting us up for the Messiah who's to come, 
who dies in our place for our sins, who casts our sins far away, who took our sins on himself. He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took it on himself, died in our place, that our sins would be cast as far as the east is from the west. He was our high priest. He was our scapegoat. He was our goat that was sacrificed. He's the Passover lamb of God. He's the sin offering that covers it all. He was the one who was qualified to go into the Holy of Holies and to do this. I mean, it's just Christ fulfills all this. It's an amazing foreshadowing of what is to come. Yeah, I mean, you get the sense that it was what had happened previously because it was because of their impurities in the camp, right? Yeah, so um, if they were true Israelites, true spiritual Israelites, meaning those who believed, because, of course, there were people there who go through the motions, you know, okay, here we are, come on, kids, get in the van, we're going down to the tabernacle, you know, and they get there and... Oh, we got, you know, a ham in the oven. Well, they wouldn't have ham. We got a uh, turkey in the oven, you know, whatever the case may be. And it's like, you know, they just want to get home and they're not taking it seriously. Okay. Did that event do anything for them? No. You had to have a heart of faith through that whole thing. Okay. All right. So if you have a heart of faith, you're a believing Israelite, you were to do this year after year. There's no doubt about it. However, if you died in between, you know, say, I mean, later this day, you kick your dog in sin or whatever, and you're back needing an atonement made, and it's like, oh, 364 and a half days until the next atonement. Um, I don't think God would say, okay, they're all going to hell, you know. Um, it's, it's a heart of faith is what it is. So this was a ritual that God gave them to reflect what is to come, but um, he would, of course, recognize their faith and credit it to them as righteousness. Celebrated the ultimate Lord's Day by eating ham. Wow. Okay, Lizzie and then Sarah. Lizzie. Yeah, that's a good question because they don't have a temple. I mean, because so eventually, if you think of Israel's history, this tabernacle was replaced by the temple. Okay, and this would take place in the temple. Well, they don't have a temple now. So, what's going on? Um, well, you'll see it on calendars, like maybe even Google Calendar, we'll put it on there, Yom Kippur. It's really just a symbolic thing, and they do, I looked it up one time, and I can't remember, they do all kinds of goofy stuff that is not in the Bible. Um, they, they're not killing animals, they're not slaughtering animals, they don't have a singular high priest going into the Holy of Holies to make atonement, they don't do any of that. They still recognize it as a holiday, but, I don't know, like a lot of things. I mean, for instance, see, uh, think, think of American holidays. I mean, how was Thanksgiving originally celebrated, right? It was a very serious, solemn, like, we are so thankful kind of thing. You think of the very first Thanksgiving and how serious that was. Fourth of July, etc. Christmas, not an American holiday, but, I mean, another holiday you could throw in there. Um, What have they become for most people? No, there were other offerings, too. So when you read through um, the law, particularly... That starts in Exodus, but a lot in Leviticus and then a lot in Deuteronomy. You'll read about multiple offerings they had. Yeah. Yeah, so there were, and there are all kinds. So there's burnt offering, there's sin offering, there's wave offering, there's grain offering. You kind of go through, there there are several different types. And so um, the law would outline who was to do it and when and why. Um, Sometimes it doesn't answer why as much as we want it to. But yes, there were, there were multiple different offerings throughout the year. Brandon. It's a great question. Okay, so you've got, um, you've got an interesting thing going on here. Let's see, this is just a, a 
thought I had in my head just now. Let's see if it comes out like I imagined. All right, so you have, this is the time of Christ. This is the death of Christ. We'll just do 33 AD here, okay? You've got um, Judaism that exists essentially, um, I mean, they call themselves, of course, sons of Abraham, but really it was Moses that God used to really strap a lot of detail here on Israel as they come out of Egypt, and you get the law. And so much of Judaism is tied up in the law with these offerings and whatnot. So you've got all that existing, we'll just say, from the time of Moses now up until the time of Jesus. Okay, now what happens, we'll, um, I don't know, I'm going to throw 100 on this. We'll do this uh, 67 years from when Jesus died till the end of that first century. You've got this transitionary time where you've got Judaism that's still going on because it's everywhere, seemingly. And then you've got this new thing called Christianity, or you could say the church, which is new. And it's like, okay, how is this going to work? You've got some people who are getting saved who are Gentiles. And they jump right in to this new thing. Uh, Many of them were never Jewish, aren't really interested in learning Judaism. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard about grace. Bang, they're in the church. They're ready to go. Well, then you also have a lot of believing Jews, and they've been used to this over here. And they say, okay, now Jesus has come and died. How does that change my world? And a lot of them struggled with that. And what we get actually is like this blend going on in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, you have Jew and Gentile trying to figure out what on earth's going on here in the church. And you've got some believers out of Judaism who still want to keep the law, who still want to go to the temple, who still want to make vows, who still want to make offerings. And you have in Acts 21, the Apostle Paul, though he had clearly left Judaism and was embracing this new thing God was doing, the church, in order to care for his fellow countrymen, his Jewish brothers, who were believing in Jesus, but still holding on to those things, he goes with them. In Acts 21... He goes with them into the temple. He shaves, uh, he, he pays for them to have their head shaved after their vow. He like goes in the vow with them. I'm going to get timeline mixed up. But he goes, in, he goes under a vow with them and, and has, they have their head shaved. He buys the offering. They go to the temple and they make the offering. And it's like, Paul, what are you doing? You're the one that talked about we're under grace, not under law. But they're trying to figure this out. And it just took time. And so that's a, that's a great question. Um, now... Pretty much, I think, all believing Jews are kind of past that. I don't know of many Jew, believing Jews out there who are truly um, descended from Jacob, who were practicing Jews, who become Christians, who still want to hold on to those practices. I'm sure there are some out there in the world. I don't personally know them. They don't make much noise. I don't see much news about them. But in the first century, when you read the book of Acts, there was a lot of that going on. No, that's okay. Yeah. Okay, so that's a good question. So Torah is a word, a Hebrew word, that means law. That's all that that word means. And so this will really clear it up. The uh, Torah actually refers to most of the time to the Pentateuch. Clear? (laughs) Okay. All right. Penta, like in the word pentagon, means five. 
That means five books, the first five books. So you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Most often when people say Torah, they're referring to the law. When people say law, they're referring to the Pentateuch. What is the Pentateuch? It's that first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy. There are some instances where people will refer to the whole Old Testament as law, as the law. And there are a couple of cases to be made that that happens in the New Testament. But the vast majority of the time, that's what's going on. Genesis to Deuteronomy. And so it's actually um, just a portion of the Old Testament. The Torah is contained in the Old Testament, not vice versa. I don't think we have enough time to start Leviticus 17. There are only two minutes left. Um, eh, let's try. Leviticus 17, 10 to 12. It's a short passage. Leviticus 17, 10 to 12. Someone want to read those three verses for us? All right. So one of their laws in Israel was not to eat blood. Um, and the reason why is because life is in the blood. And scientifically speaking, that's true. Life is in the blood. Okay. And God designed it that way. God is the God who created us. He's the one who designed blood and life and how all that works together. He designed it that way to make a point about sacrifice. Atonement is life for life. And because of all that, Jews were not allowed to eat blood pudding or to eat raw meat. They were not to eat blood. Blood sausage. Blood soup. That happens in some places in the world. Uh, boy, times would be tough if you found me eating that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And so um, for the Jews, though, not allowed. Okay? Because there's life in the blood. And verse 11 is really important. I think what you should do if you're taking notes or if you mark in your Bible, make note of verse 11. That's a good memory verse. Verse 11. Life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Very, very important. Okay? Well, that is where we will finish it today. And... Uh, I will pray for us, and then we'll go on to the, the next thing. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for all the blessings you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to continue worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Help us to do this rightly today by your grace, that we would have a sweet time together as we move on to our second service, that you would be honored among us. Thank you for the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.